As they go, I just want to mention um, a couple of things. Uh, one, some of you have asked about and are interested in, um, tonight at 6.30, we'll be talking just kind of about the, the places with the summer in the Middle East, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, and if you want to come be a part of that, that's 6.30 tonight, so we'd love to have you be a part. Um, also, if you're a guy in the room and you are a parent, or maybe you have influence on young people, I would encourage you, beginning next Sunday night at 6.30, to come be a part of um, just a four-week study that we're looking at the book called The Intentional Father. I'm going to have a panel of some dads just talking about what does it look like for us to faithfully follow after Jesus and help our families to do the same. So hope you'll be here next Sunday night, 6.30. I'd love to have you be a part of that. Um, and then I guess I could mention, I, mean, I think Matt's going to mention it as well, but I'll mention it because it can't hurt. Um, at 1 o'clock today, we are ripping carpet out of the gym. I know you're all so excited, but if you're physically able, we'd love to have you at 1 p.m., um, you know, if you've got a flat shovel, bring that and the razor blade knife, and that's pretty much it. So um, it's just getting carpet out of a room. But we'll look great when it's done, we hope. So uh, hopefully you'll be a part of that. So I, I was thinking today um, how just like there's a prime example where like at some level I'm relying on the graciousness of God's people that we are going to work collaboratively in that effort. Otherwise, if I'm relying on myself, it will take me a really long time to get that done. Right? It's a collaborative effort. But often in life, our goal is to not rely on other people. Right? We can do it ourselves. To be self-reliant. That's, especially like men in America, that's like our goal. It wouldn't be the, the self-made man. But the reality is for all of us, there have been moments in life when we've been fully reliant upon other people. Don't believe me? You were an infant once. You could not feed yourself or change your own diaper or give yourself a bath or wrap yourself in a blanket. You did none of those things. You were fully reliant upon someone else. And here's the other reality for all of us. Even the most self-made among us have to have someone write the check that comes to us or write the check that we receive for our payment or someone has to be our customer and buy our product or pay for our service. Whatever we do, someone else contributes to what we have, period. There's no way around it. But for most of us, we don't really love the idea of getting to a place of reliance on others, especially as we grow older. We want to be more self-reliant so that no one else has impact on what we do. So I was thinking about uh, friends of ours tell the story. It's not my story, so I, I'll make that clear. Um, he's a retired policeman at this point, but years ago when he was in one of the largest cities in America as a policeman, he was a part of the, the police fire games, right? The policemen play the firemen in all these sports and different events. Happens all around the country. Not that surprising. Um, and so he was a college athlete, so he's like, I'm going to dominate this thing. And so he's playing in a basketball game, and he runs full speed to try to get a steal and a fast break, and he puts his hands up to stop himself at the wall. Most of us have probably done this. Have you ever done anything athletic in your life? Like in kindergarten, you run and stop at the wall, and he breaks both elbows. And so now he's in a cast from elbow to hand on both sides. Now, I just told you he was a policeman. In fact, I mean, he, he had some pretty cool roles I won't talk about because I, I didn't have permission to tell the story. Um, but but he, he all of a sudden went from being able to do all this cool stuff to nothing. So his wife laughed. She's like, yeah, we had one and three-year-old. She loves telling the story and laughs the whole time. They had a one and three-year-old at the time, and she said, yeah, we'd sit down for dinner, and it'd be this. One for you, and one for you, and one for you. Um, <laughs> demoralizing, right? As a man, they sit there like, can I have more? No, 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 less. And, he go, and she goes, that wasn't even the bad part. It was the showers, and then we had to go to the bathroom. That was the worst. My wife and I have talked about this story before. She says we'd hire a nurse because she wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> don't know that I blame her. 
right? But here's the reality. Like, we don't know what to do. Like, that's a shift in our life where we become reliant upon someone else in a way that we never wanted to or never thought possible. That reliance upon another becomes one of the things that transforms us and changes us, right? So it probably actually grew that couple closer together because there had to be a level of greater trust that you don't think about. But here's the reality for all of us. There are moments where we don't want to go to the place where we need to rely upon someone else. But when it comes to spiritual transformation, the changing of who we are, if we don't get to the place of complete surrender and reliance upon God, then the transformation never actually happens. So we looked at last week, really, in the story of Abraham, he was at this crossroads. Which direction am I going to go? Am I going to go towards where God is calling me to be a blessing to the world? Or am I going to go my own direction with what I know? And he chose to go. We talked about the story. Others two steps forward and a step back and those kind of things. But then this week, we're, we're going to look at a different story. And so you go from Abraham and you go to Isaac as his son and tell his story. And then there's Jacob and Jacob wrestles with God and he gets a new name. He's named Israel. And Israel becomes the father of the nation of Israel. He has 12 sons, hence why there's 12 tribes of Israel. And he has these sons. But, but let's be honest, um, he has 12 sons, but he also has two wives. So by the way, it's never a good idea. In fact, they were actually sisters, so it gives a whole new meaning to the idea of sister wives. They were legit sisters married to the same man. Bad idea, by the way, for lots of reasons. Right? Here's why that's a bad idea. Because um, he then began to have favorites. He had favorite sons. Right, so here's a helpful analogy for us. The Bible specifically, and the Old Testament probably more specifically than the New Testament, often is descriptive. It's telling a story more than it's prescriptive, saying this is how you ought to live. That makes sense? So it's telling you the story, not saying this is what you should do. And so the story of, of Israel, sort of Jacob, is that story. He has two wives, right? And then he has a favorite son. So he has 12 sons, and he's like, I've got a favorite um, because my favorite wife, also, right, this is a bad story. My favorite wife has a son, and he's my favorite. So sorry to my not favorite wife and all my other kids. Like, I don't like them as much. Do you think your kids wouldn't figure that out? By the way, I love both my kids equally, just so we're all on the same page. Like, you can tell them I said that. It's fine. Um, but, but he loves one son more than the others. And so he loves Joseph the most. And so his brothers, you can imagine, they're not really pumped about this idea that we have a brother that dad loves more than the others. And so he got the special robe, which is like an expensive jacket, you know. Um, he would have had special privilege. He probably got to stay closer to home. He didn't have to go do the hard work. In fact, Joseph wasn't, um, he was really smart, but like he was one of those smart without common sense smart, right? So here's an example. He um, tells his dad, hey, dad, I don't know how to tell you this, but my brothers, they're not working very hard. I, I, they're just not working hard enough. Well, how well do you think it's going to go if the youngest says about the oldest who are out working, dad, I went and checked on them. They're not doing the job. Probably not super well, right? Then he goes and says, hey, by the way, I had this dream, and here's the dream, and he tells him the dream, and he says, here's what it means, by the way. Um, someday, you're all going to bow to me, including dad. Not a great way, if you're already the favorite, and you know you're the favorite, not a way, great way to endear you to your brothers. Even your dad goes, hey, I, I think that's enough. We don't need to tell that story anymore. And so we begin to see this, this kind of shift take place among the brothers of Joseph. They become jealous. In fact, they become so jealous that one day he's going out to see them and they plot to kill him. By the way, here's a side note. Um, jealousy is a ferocious animal and if it is left unchecked, it can destroy us and others. Jealousy will destroy us. 
And if it's lived out, it can destroy other people too. So this is a reminder for us, the story of these brothers is the same reality of that story. And so Joseph's going to see his brothers, and they see him coming, they go, you know what? Let's just kill him. We don't like him. He's dad's favorite. We're sick of him. He's going to probably tattle on us for something else. We're just going to kill him. As Joseph comes, they begin to plot. And then one of his brothers goes, hey, I don't know that we want to kill him. But he's thinking this more to himself. So he says, hey, why don't we throw him in that pit? We'll just leave him there. They're like, yeah, great idea. We'll throw him in the pit. And so his brother's thinking, well, I'll come back and I'll get him out later. And, and then, you know, we don't have to worry about it. So they throw him in the pit. And then they sit down and have lunch. It's really a crazy story. So we throw our brother in the pit. You know, we're going to tell dad he got eaten by first animals. We'll take his jacket. And then they see this caravan coming along. And they go, huh, maybe we could just sell him to them and make money. Good idea. We get rid of our brother, and we make money. Sounds like a win to us. So they sell their brother into slavery. They take his, his robe. They kill an animal. They cover it in blood, and they take it back to Dad, and we go, Dad, isn't this Joseph's coat? And so Jacob, Israel, he grieves the loss of his son. He's lost his favorite son. Brothers think it's good. He's gone. It's over with. But that's not the end of the story of Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery, and he goes from this place of kind of being favored son to being slave. He has no control of what happens next in his life, and he's sold to Potiphar, who's the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. He goes into Potiphar's house, and he begins to work in Potiphar's house, and he's serving, he does such a good job that Potiphar sees the work he's doing and puts him in charge of his entire household. And so Joseph, the one who went from favored son, is still a slave, but he's over the entire household of Potiphar. And here's where we pick up the texts. And so he's trying to live well, following after what um, Potiphar has entrusted to him. But here's what we see beginning in Genesis 39. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. By the way, in the Bible, this does say this like a half dozen times. Like David and Saul randomly will say, hey, this person was really good looking. So I, I don't know why it's in there, but there it is. So here's what we find. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. That's the first thing that he did when he's tempted, right? He's tempted again and again and again. She comes to him day after day after day after day. Many of us, right, when we have the same temptation over and over again, we just give into it, hoping it'll quit. That's not how that works, by the way. Joseph, when he's tempted, and when it's really that pivotal moment where he can lean into the temptation or run away, he literally runs. And his jacket's left behind. And then we see what happens next, right? Joseph 
this one who has been trying to be faithful to his master. He's trying to live appropriately. In fact, I love this line because he says, he doesn't say that I'll be sinning against Potiphar, although he says it's wrong because Potiphar is my master and he's withheld nothing from me except for you. So I'm not doing that. But what he says is this, it'd be sinning against God. Right? Not only would I wrong Potiphar, but I would be wrong to God. To live into this is a way in which God has called me not to live. There's a way that God's people are called to live uniquely in the world, and this is not it. And notice that Joseph does the right thing, but the result's not good. Right? So often we have bought into the belief if we just do the right thing, we'll get the right result. That's just not always true. But it doesn't make the right thing less the right thing. That's the most powerful part of this part of the story is if it's the right thing, it's still the right thing, even if we get the wrong result. It doesn't change, right? This is why we, we as Christians, never say, like, the means justify the ends. They don't. It always matters, the means. And so we see this story pick up here, verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave... He brought us, came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph goes from favored son to slave, from chief servant to inmate. He's been doing the right thing. He's learning to rely upon God, right? It's an obvious reliance upon God. That's why he got put in prison the first time. But that doesn't mean just because we learn to rely on God that everything in our life goes well. In fact, that's sometimes not even the reality of what happens. He begins to rely on God in a way, and I can only imagine that he learns to sit in God's presence in ways that you and I would long for to hear his still small voice, to come to know the depth of his love and his character. And so Joseph, in the midst of all the turmoil of his life, keeps turning to God over and over again. And then there's this next scene, right? I'm going to summarize all of Genesis chapter 40 with just a few words. So the next, Genesis chapter 40, um, Pharaoh throws in prison the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, right? He just got mad at him and said, you know what, that's it, you're going to prison. If you're Pharaoh, you can do that. And so they're there in prison, they both have these dreams, and they go and they have these dreams and they can't figure them out, and they say to Joseph, hey, we've had these dreams, you know, what do you think? And so he basically says to, um, to the baker, he says, well, here's what your dream means. You're going to get impaled and killed. Oh, well, that's no good. This cupbearer goes, well, what about my dream? And he's like, well, you're going to get restored to your position and Pharaoh's going to welcome you back in. But when he does, will you remember me? Will you, re- will you remember me before Pharaoh so that maybe I can get out of here? Right, it's this kind of crazy scene. And, and yet, the cupbearer is restored and he forgets about Joseph. But it's also a reminder that in this story, God never does forget about Joseph. The cupbearer may have forgotten about Joseph, but God didn't. He recognizes that Joseph's still there. 
And Joseph has learned in the middle of this process, he's not placing his trust or his faith in that of another person. He's continually placing his trust in the person of God over and over again. The God of Abraham who called him to be a part of a people. And God was faithful to that call. And so he's believing that that God is real and that he has called him this particular way of life. And here is where the story begins to take a turn in chapter 41. Here's what we see. When two full years had passed. Did you catch that? When two more full years had passed. Remember me to cut bear two years later. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today, I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. After two years, learning to sit in God's presence and let that be enough, learning to trust in the goodness of God, regardless of the circumstances in which you have experienced. And so we see now that Pharaoh sends for Joseph. And it says, Joseph has to get cleaned up. I mean, can you imagine? It's really hot in Egypt, and he's in a prison in the ancient world. I can't imagine it was awesome. And he's probably not getting access to the Nile to go clean himself. And so he has to get, be presentable before he can go to the king. And so this man is finally released from this space, cleaned up, taken to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to him, here are my dreams. Can you interpret them? And I love Joseph's response from verse 16. He says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I cannot do it, but God. It's a picture of the reality of for us is that Joseph relies upon God in a way that begins to make total sense for him. He knows that I can't do this on my own, but God could reveal to me what your dreams mean. And if that's the case, it's God who's doing the work, not me. I'm just fortunate to be used by him in this moment to give you the answer you're looking for. And so Joseph interprets the green, the dream, and he says this, there's going to be seven great years where there's going to be lots of produce, lots of grain, lots of like farmland's going to be doing really well, but then we're going to have seven years that are going to be awful. And so here's the solution. The first seven years, if you'll save back some of that stuff, when the second seven years comes, you're going to have more than enough. And so Pharaoh goes, makes sense to me. Um, so how about you be in charge of it? Excuse me? I was in prison earlier today. Did you not remember that part? 
So this is the arc of Joseph's life, from favored son to slave, from favorite servant to prisoner, from prisoner to second in charge of Egypt. Pretty cool journey. But it doesn't end there. So now, Joseph's in charge of all Egypt. He's in charge of bringing in the grain, the collection, and the storing of all these things. And, and so when, when people from outside Egypt would come to buy grain, they would have to come to see him, and he would tell them the price, and they would buy it, and people would give it to him. And so um, Joseph sees his brothers because his dad heard, Jacob heard, that there was food in Egypt, and there was no food in Canaan. And so he sends them off to Egypt. And Joseph sees his brothers, and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. I mean, it's not that surprising. We sold him into slavery. There's no way he'd go from being a slave to second in charge of Egypt. And he would probably have been dressed like an Egyptian, not like a Hebrew. So they'd been like, well, what in the world happened here? And so he sees them, and he does what pretty much every brother would do if they experienced that. He puts his brothers in prison and says they're spies. Off to prison they go for three days. Then he probably feels a little bit guilty. His brothers are convinced that they're being punished for what they did to him by God. And so he eventually sends them on their way, but he kind of meets with them first, and he says this, um, tell me about your, your family. Well, you know, there were, with these brothers, we had, there was one more of us, but he's no more. And uh, we have another brother now. His name is Benjamin. He's the youngest. He's dad's favorite now because he's from dad's favorite wife. And uh, he goes, well, I bring that one here. And they're like, oh, no, dad will not let him leave. Like, I, he's like, I don't think I was requesting and they're like, well, you know, and so basically, long story short, Joseph connives with them, Benjamin comes back, and then, when he's got all his brothers there, and they fill all their sacks with the grain, and they're going to send them on their way, he has his servant put his own silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And when they take off, he has them stopped, and they said, one of you stole my master's silver cup. They're like, well, it wasn't one of us, and if it was, you can have him, you know, like, it wasn't one of us. They begin to dump out their sacks and their packs, and there in Benjamin's sack is the silver cup from Joseph's table. And you can only imagine how the brothers now feel. We sold off dad's favorite son to slavery. This is now his favorite son that we promised we would protect. And now here he is, he's going to find himself executed in Egypt. And we're going to have to tell dad. And it's too much for Judah, his brother, who says, no, 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 trade me. Trade me for Benjamin. Like, I, you can kill me, do whatever, make me a slave, I, I don't care. But, but do not let this son not go home because our dad will die. It will kill him. And this brings us back to the text because this is what moved Joseph to respond. Chapter 45, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out. Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Joseph sees the goodness of God in his story. He sees how God is the God who desires to redeem all broken parts of our lives. It's a beautiful picture of how God can be at work in the things that we see. And God can transform what seemed to be this broken thing in our life and become a beautiful mosaic. It's the reality for us in these moments that we begin to see that the journeys of our faith, it's a, it's a powerful thing that Joseph begins to surrender his life. He redeems his story. He redeems his family. He redeems the relationship with his brothers. And in fact, Jacob's whole family comes to Israel, and Joseph makes sure they have land, and they have food, and they don't die. Joseph saves the people of God. And if I stopped right there, it's a really good story. The problem is, the story doesn't stop there, no matter how much I want it to. I love the story of Joseph. I really do. It's one of my favorite stories. But, but the more I have begun to study and learn, is you realize how much they connect what happens next to the people of God with the story of Joseph. In fact, we begin to see what happens when Joseph begins to collect the grain. Not only does he collect the grain, but now he's selling the grain out. So here's what we begin to see in chapter 47, and it eventually leads to the enslavement of the people of God. Here's what the scripture says. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I'll sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through the year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? By us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seeds that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh. 
It's where Joseph no longer becomes the hero of the story. Joseph, the one who had been sold into slavery, what's he do? Buy slaves. He becomes the broker for Pharaoh. Servitude's a nice way in the scriptures of saying slavery. He buys the people and they become the slaves to Pharaoh. Right? Joseph had opportunity. He could have right? said, hey, let's negotiate these prices, Pharaoh, so we know it's going to be a long time. They don't know it's going to be that long. We can, we can make it less that we charge. You'll become so gracious and compassionate that people will love you, Pharaoh. And he'd already put Joseph in charge, so he could have done that. He could have said, hey, Pharaoh, we've already got more than we need. We already have all their animals. We could just give them the grain. And Pharaoh probably would have said, okay, we don't really know. But he doesn't. He goes from slave to slave broker. Instead of recognizing what he had been entrapped in and he had been messed with and finding that, he becomes the one to not only allow it, but to propagate it. And this is a reminder for you and I, the system of Pharaoh doesn't make room for compassion. It doesn't make room for graciousness. Joseph could be no more vulnerable, no more reliant upon others, namely God, than when he was a slave. And yet, when Joseph has arrived at a position of power and influence, when he can use that in the call of Abram to be a blessing to the world, to bless others because you have been blessed, he doesn't. Instead of being worried about the God of Abraham, he's worried about the God known as Pharaoh. What he could have done, he didn't do. In fact, what ended up happening then is people were comfortable in the system that they knew it. And so... All the Israelites should have left at the end of the famine, but they were comfortable where they were, and they weren't in the promised land where they were supposed to be. They were so comfortable with what Joseph had done that they stayed. And everything was fine until that day there was a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph. And you go, well, maybe Joseph didn't sell the Israelites into slavery. Maybe not, but do you think they weren't like, looked down upon by everybody else who was Egyptian who had been sold into slavery? And so Pharaoh eventually enslaves the people. We'll be talking about that in the next few weeks. But here's why that story matters so much. Because so often in our own lives, we'll say things like this. If God will do this, then I will do that. Or, you know, God, if, if when I get to this place, it's right. It's why, I, I mean, we don't talk a lot about money. Some churches talk about it all the time. But um, it's why some people will say, well, I'll start tithing when I have more money. No, you won't. If you don't do it with what you have now, you're not going to do it with what you have later. It just sounds good in our heads. It makes us feel good. Which is not true. If when I get this, when I have more of this, I'll do that. No, you won't. If you don't do it when you have less, you don't do it when you have more. That's how that works. It's about our hearts. And that Joseph, this is the problem for him. His heart is not good. In the end, he's entrapped by the systems of Pharaoh and not by the kingdom of God. He's living from the economy of Pharaoh and not from God's economy. And it messes with him in such a way that it changes the very nature of who he has been. He has been reliant upon God, but now he's reliant upon a new system. And it has changed everything. And so here's where this matters for us. Is God invites us to be a unique people who recognize broken systems in our world. They exist all over. And we'll have to learn to see them as they are, not as we wish they were. It's why I love what happens in the Exodus story when Israel comes out of Egypt. One of the hardest things is for Egypt to come out of Israel. We'll be talking about it in the next few weeks. But here's what we see in this story. Here's what we find in Exodus chapter 22. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien. 
For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. And my wrath will burn. Jumping ahead, you shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. But that poses a question for those coming out of Egypt. Here's what they find. They find that they are invited to awareness that life does not consist in frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone else to threat and competitor, right? We live in a culture that values you have to work 24-7, 365, or else someone may get ahead of you and your business. So the odd insistence of the God of Sinai is to counter anxious productivity with committed neighborliness. The latter practice does not produce so much but it creates an environment of security and respect and dignity that redefines the human project. So what's it look like in the life of God's people? It looks like Sabbath. Rest. How do you counter a culture that runs a Pharaoh's economy, doesn't take a break? I was talking about they make, you're going to make bricks without straw. Like You're going to work until you can't work anymore. How do you counter that? What does God do when he frees them? He gives them rest. Because that goes counter the economy of the world. So Joseph has found himself trapped in Pharaoh's economy. And eventually it leads to Israel being trapped in Pharaoh's economy. And it eventually leads to their slavery, to their production, to produce more and more because Pharaoh is never satisfied. But that's not who God's people are. That's not what God's people look like. That's not what they're called to. We're called to see whatever opportunities we have. What, what are we supposed to do? Like, love God and love our neighbor. How do we create opportunity where that's what flourishes? How do we recognize in our homes and our workplaces where we have opportunity to speak into that and influence our culture in those kinds of ways? That, that's what it looks like to be God's unique people in the world. And Joseph, somewhere along the line, was redeemed but forgot who it is that redeemed him because it wasn't Pharaoh. And so the story becomes this, that we want to pay attention to the systems that we're in. Make sure we don't get so wrapped up in a system that destroys our very souls. So now, today, what about us? Maybe that's what you need to pay attention to where you're working or what you're doing and those kind of things and how you can, can further the influence of God's kingdom. Or maybe, just maybe, you need to be reminded of the first half of Joseph's story today. And when it seems like you're at your worst, when you're in your most desperate, when you have nowhere else to turn and nothing else to rely on, God is still present with you. That just like Jesus, who takes our, our lives, and he takes the broken pieces of our lives, he redeems and restores them, and he makes them whole, just like the life of Joseph. That there is no place we can go that God's love does not transcend. There is no thing we can experience where he does not come near to us. All right, here's the reality. I do not believe in a God who wants bad things to happen to us or in our lives. In fact, Jesus says the opposite all throughout the scriptures. I don't believe in God who makes bad things happen to people or makes these things that happen that way. That is not what you'll find in the New Testament. What you will find is a God that takes the broken pieces of our life and he redeems them and he restores them and he makes them new. It is not that God is the causation of those things, but he can make good out of what has seemed to be so broken. That's the story of Joseph I want us to remember today that God wants to do in and through us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Or, if we want to use the words of Paul today, here's what Paul writes in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It does not mean 
that God causes the bad things to happen, but God will take those broken pieces of our lives, those broken experiences and relationships, and he will redeem them and restore them. He'll bring the heaven into the here and now. So whatever has been broken in our life, God desires to redeem and to restore and to make new. Work all things for good. That's who God is. That's what we see in his son, Jesus. And that's the invitation for you and I to recognize that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Even if we feel like we've been in prison for years and no one has been there. He's still there. Even if we feel like we've been shunned by our family or pushed away, he's still there. Even if we feel like we don't know where to go next or what the next step is for us, he still promises to be there. He promises again and again that he will be present with us no matter what we have gone through. And today, maybe you and I need to know this, that there is no part of our story, part of our life, part of our family, part of our history that God cannot redeem and make new. Because that's who God is. We pray with me today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today for the way in which you love us and the way in which you desire to transform us again and again, that you invite us to live as a unique people in the world. That by how we live, it would be so transformative that others begin, would begin to look and sound and act like you because we have so encountered you that you have changed us. So Father, help us to love as you love, to rely on you in every aspect of our life and to surrender all things to you so that in our surrender, we would see, receive your love in a way that changes who we are. And so, Father, we thank you for what you have done and continue to do in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.